It's such disturbing video. George Floyd handcuffed, lying on his stomach, with a police officer's knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes as he begs for breath. I can breathe. I'm Michael Joyce, host of the Health in All Matters podcast from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. We opened this second series of our podcast with that news clip. We knew George Floyd's murder was a flashpoint, and we knew we had to respond. We needed to listen and learn and acknowledge the urgency of addressing racism as a public health priority. In this final episode of our series on racism as a public health emergency, you'll hear from two people who were instrumental in helping put this series together. One is Tricia Alexander. She's a master's student in our program with a special interest in both nutrition and human rights. The other is Kumi Smith. She's an assistant professor in our Division of Epidemiology and Community Health with a strong passion for health equity. Here's Tricia. Uh, his murder absolutely changed me. His murder was a modern-day lynching, and I'll admit I haven't watched the video. I don't have it in me to watch that video. Just hearing the audio of it, I'm already having a visceral reaction just now thinking about hearing his voice and the realization that he knows he's going to die there. And so to watch that video for me would would take me beyond a point of recovery. I think it would be self-inflicted harm. So his murder changed me in that I reassessed what I was willing to put on the line, what I was willing to essentially risk for human rights. I had never been to a protest before. And after George Floyd's murder was the first time I went to a protest. And it was the protest in which a tanker truck drove through the highway as we all were sitting there in a moment of silence. And walking away from that moment, I felt just so connected to people who I didn't even know. Um, that made me realize that it's not just a saying that, you know, human rights are for everyone. I've in that moment felt what it meant to live by those words that um, when you're really in in the fight, are you willing to have your actions uh, back up those words? And seeing others live up to that made me rededicate myself to living up to that that cause. Did the global response surprise either of you? And 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 what are your thoughts as it started started to spread virally across the globe? It did surprise me because I felt. You know, this will just be another scenario where there's some rage, outrage for a couple of months and then we'll all go back to normal. But then I realized there was no normal for us to go back to being in the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, people didn't have their everyday routine that they could just jump right back into. Um, I think there was a lot of time to sit and and think about this. And I do wonder if the pandemic just created a scenario in which regardless of your background, you were experiencing some sort of trauma, some sort of stress with this pandemic and to see another person lose their life during such a tumultuous time, I think would ignite compassion in any human, any other human being. 
I think I too was surprised at the at the response. And when I reflect back on it, I feel like one of the reasons why George Floyd really hit home for so much of us and also for folks around the world is because the pandemic had really kind of distilled life down to what's so important, which is your health and your life, how important social connection is and how reliant we all are on each other. Uh, and I think it was just the absurdity of it that how are we all trying to fight to stay alive and to stay well during a pandemic? And how is it that a black man is still having to die this way um, when we now know that there's so much more that's important? So before we go any further in this conversation, I think we need to connect the dots between the mission of public health and the health impacts of racism. So for you, Kumi, what is the most clear and convincing argument that racism is a public health issue? Yeah, that's both an easy and a really complex question that I think our field is really struggling with. Maybe not all folks have an immediate understanding of what public health means. So to start from there, I think of it actually as contrasting with medicine, where medicine is about the health of an individual, public health is about the health of populations. And so if you look at health from a population point of view, it becomes pretty quickly obvious just how different we all are from each other. But it's in like a very specific way. And those ways are essentially patterns. So during this pandemic, we've had to deal with why is, for example, COVID so much more lethal to people who identify as Black or Latinx? And then when you think of police shootings, why is it that the risk of being killed by a police officer is two and a half times higher for young Black men as compared to young white men? So it's not that being Black is bad for your health. It's that the pervasive racism in our system unfairly disadvantages some groups and unfairly advantages some groups, but it does so based on how we look. So what this really tells us is that health conditions and access to healthcare are spread out across our societies in a really uneven way, and that racism is the driving force behind all these things. So we in public health often talk about what we call the social determinants of health, things like housing, education, employment, And all of these are sort of your ticket to better health. And if there is a system that distributes these things unevenly, that system is something that we as public health have to address and have to think about. And it is what fundamentally links public health to a system like racism and obliges us to dismantle it in the name of public health. Looking back at episode one, remember when we were debating whether or not racism is a public health emergency? I've always been curious what your thoughts were about that. Uh, whether you bought that or not, and if so, why, and if not, why? There's so many ways in which it's so clear to me that it's a public health emergency, but I think it's because I live in the body of a Black woman and experience what it's like to navigate um, this world as a Black woman. So to me, this was all, um, you know, common sense. Um, It's understanding how racism impacts Black people's ability to make life decisions, right? And I think the best way I can frame this is through reproductive choices. Dr. Rachel Hardman at the School of Public Health is doing research right now on how police violence is literally impacting Black women's decision to have children. And 
I think it's easy for us to understand this in other countries. You know, we think about countries that are war torn and what happens there um, when they're going through civil unrest. And I think that is happening here. And we are just choosing not to see it in the same way. You know, there's black boys and girls and women and men who are going out into a war zone and they have no guarantees that they will come home each day. You know, their life might be seen as only worth a $20 bill like George Floyd. Your life is only worth a bottle of orange juice like Latasha Harlan's. I think about all these scenarios in which Black people must always be ready to fight or flee uh, or freeze in order to make it home alive. Um, And if we can see that as an issue uh, of democracy and human rights in other countries, why can't we see that as an issue of democracy and human rights here on American soil? And, and it brings up that notion that a lot of us who are white, we're not sure how racism affects us. In a way, we don't know what to do with it. We're uncomfortable with it. What are your thoughts? I'm eager to learn what you think about how racism does affect all of us. I do want to start off by saying that when I think about racism affects all of us, I don't think about it in the sense of we all equally are impacted with the burden of racism, um, because that's not true. But how I think about it is in a couple of ways. One way is self-compassion. In order to have compassion for self, I feel you almost have to have compassion for others. And that when you don't see others suffering as similar to your suffering, I feel that's almost so isolating. And another way I think about racism affecting all of us is that there's always a hierarchy, right? So I think about how power is at the center of all isms, not just racism, and how when we cannot address the experiences of racism, I don't see how we can address sexism. I don't see how we can address homophobia. Um, I just don't see how any type of discrimination or prejudice can be addressed without addressing the roots of racism. I think about that poem, uh, First They Came, right? First they came for the Jews, and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. Or first they came for the socialists, and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a socialist. Um, And he ends it by saying, then they came for me, and no one was there to speak for me. I would totally agree with you that I think the notion of racism as a social problem, I think for a long time has been talked about as if this is about uplifting, you know, Black, Indigenous and people of color with this like implied message that the target that we're all trying to reach, the level that we're all trying to reach is the standard of living and the wellness that white people experience. And I think that's kind of why the idea of diversity and equity or the idea of minority health has often been championed by like scholars of color and students of color and the rest of, you know, the academia or uh, the rest of society might applaud those, but they don't participate in it, at least not until recently. And, you know, I think it's a pretty subtle shift, but a profound one is to realize that, you know, we've been thinking about racism as what we need to do to lift certain groups, say out of poverty or, you know, out of certain neighborhoods or things like that. And so we fixate on exactly what you were talking about, which is their suffering and their deficiencies. And the real consequence of that, aside from putting people into boxes and um, really perpetuating stereotypes, 
is that I think it absolves the system that created those hierarchies in the first place. And it also sounds, Kumi, like a caste system. So many things that Trisha have been saying really bring to mind um, some of the things that uh, I've been learning from in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Caste, really, which is to talk about how caste systems are everywhere. In the book, she talks specifically about caste systems in Nazi Germany, in India, and the United States. And she says, you know, each version relied on stigmatizing those deemed inferior to justify the dehumanization necessary to keep the lowest ranked people at the bottom. And the most chilling thing she points out about caste systems is that they endure because they're often justified as divine will originating from sacred text or of the presumed laws of nature or reinforced throughout the culture and passed down through the generations. So when I hear that, it makes me realize that there's a reason why I came up through my public school system never learning about these things. And whatever I might have witnessed or seen about the Black American experience was kind of handed to me as, you know, very matter of fact, like this is, this is just how it is in America. And I don't see any adults around me questioning it. So why would I? Um, And that's how I think these systems, as Isabel Wilkerson says, it gets reinforced through the culture and then passed down through the generations. So it takes a huge amount of effort to wake up and, and realize Um, what has been handed down to us and how that mistake has been repeated time and time again. Um, And that it's going to take a momentous effort to break that cycle. Um, Fortunately, you know, our generation is not the first to know this and there's been so much work done before us, but there's, there's a huge amount of history and uh, thought and philosophy that we need to learn. Tricia, as a student about to become a public health professional, what's your plan for confronting racism in your professional life? I look at addressing racism in my professional life with the same amount of passion and necessity as I do in my personal life, Um, because the two I don't think can be separated. Um, I think it's a characteristic of white supremacy when we try to be objective about this work uh, professionally or academically, um, because we cannot truly be objective about something that is extremely personal and emotional. One main thing that comes to mind is recognizing the humanity of the other. You know, I think about Loretta Ross, and she is one of the founders of the reproductive justice movement. Um, And I attended one of her um, virtual lecture series, and she talked about how she had a mentor who basically said, you cannot ask others to show up with love and kindness if you cannot do the same. And, you know, she was like, of course, you know, of course I can do that. And then he said, well, can you do it for someone who was a KKK member. And that for her was huge to think about, right? Like how do we show up with love and kindness for people who blatantly hate us for reasons that are beyond our control? Um, And by othering um, people, we can then justify within ourselves that, oh, well, there's something that makes them less of a human. Um, But the moment we start to recognize 
the humanity of the other as our own. Um, that's just a different level of engagement and, and intentionality in combating racism. Um, it's not about helping. It's about solidarity. And this brings up the issue of solutions, because it makes me wonder where public health as a discipline might have the biggest impact. More importantly, what's realistic and doable if public health wants to step in here? I think public health has a really important role to play in anti-racism and dismantling structural racism, because we hold such strong evidence in our hands that it exists. And I think holding it up for the public to examine and to, and to give them sort of unequivocal evidence that it's there um, is a really powerful role that we can play. Um, Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is really making the rounds right now. And I think one of the really key things that he talks about is that people often mistake racism as a matter of hatred and bigotry and ignorance. And he says, instead, it's actually, it's really none of those things. And it's, it's not really about changing individual minds. It's about really confronting the system that we have all found ourselves a part of and using the tools that we have available to dismantle that system and to uh, lay the groundwork for a new one. On top of that, I think what has really kind of come to light in the past few years is that researchers and academics and people who practice public health also have some of the greatest leverage over making policy changes that really need to happen to, to make these differences and so we really do have, I, I think, sort of a moral, but also uh, a professional obligation and ability to, to implement a lot of the important change that we're all really reacting to right now, both with COVID and in the post-George Floyd era. Elevating missing or unheard or marginalized voices, we hear a lot about the need for it, but not so much about how it can be done. And again, the question becomes, does public health have a role here in terms of elevating these missing, unheard or marginalized voices? What do you think, Kumi? What I think our field needs to do is to first educate ourselves as to who's already doing this important work of anti-racism in the public health field, who's already out there. Then I think what public health needs to do is to invite those folks to the table and give them a platform. But we must be careful not to do it in a way that um, tokenizes them or kind of marginalizes them because that's been happening for a long time. And the ways that I think a lot of activists have told us to be careful about that is compensate folks for their time, be ready to take seriously their suggestions for structural change, and avoid making excuses that, you know, something that they're suggesting is simply too hard. Because by saying that, you're sort of minimizing the injustice or the struggle that they're trying to describe to you. And I think a final really important thing is for us to focus on diversifying who is active in our field of public health. So who are our researchers? who are our study participants, our community partners, our students. And when we want to diversify, that's a very noble goal. But I think often what can end up happening is that our field will just sort of pluck the few Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are active at the top, and then we sort of hire and recruit them away. But what we don't necessarily do is invest in the pipelines, you know, these the younger ages and the earlier stages of education, when we really need to start help fostering the next generation of, of scientists and, and doctors and activists. And these are the people who are going to make our public health workforce in the future 
and who are going to make the workforce and the responses that we create reflect the diversity and the values of the people that we serve. How about you, Tricia, when you graduate from this program and become a public health official, how would you like to see public health as a discipline help elevate those missing and unheard voices? I think something very pragmatic that the field of public health could do is broaden what it believes is its area of practice. And by that, I mean, we have an understanding of social determinants of health being, you know, someone's access to food, someone's access to housing, all of these different areas. And I hope to see public health lean in more and push a little bit more into working more collaboratively with folks in these fields, working interprofessionally, right? And saying, we might be the field of public health, but you won't limit us to only addressing diseases until it becomes, you know, the norm, until it becomes part of the framework of public health to be engaging in education policies and, you know, all of these different areas that affect people's health entrenching ourselves in community, right? To the point that community members know, you know, there's so-and-so from the Department of Public Health and um, they come to our community garden, they come to, um, you know, our block parties, they, they know my kids' school and their needs. And I think it's really that personal connection um, that requires time. But I think public health is slowly starting to see, you know, it's not enough to just come in and do a study. And it's not enough to come in and do a study and then leave the tools with people, right? I think personal relationships go a long way. Um, And that's a big personal choice um, that people have to make is how much am I willing to use my role as a public health official, not only to get funding for communities and and research, which is important, but actually become a part of these communities um, and know their day-to-day struggles. I think like a common refrain that happened after George Floyd was this anxiety that we all sort of secretly know that George Floyd is unfortunately probably not, and well, he hasn't been the last Black unarmed person to die at the hands of police. So the fact that we know that it's still coming means that we know that this work is important and that it's unfinished and that it's going to be ongoing. So there's this question of stamina. How do we keep fighting and not take our eyes off of the ball? And at the same time, it's it's very emotionally distressing and um, stressful. And there's there's so many personal emotions caught up in it. And I think the question is, how do you both honor those emotions and, and not ignore them? But how do you harness them to, to make for sustained, directed, intentional work in this you know, anti-racist journey? Um, I look for role models. You know, I ironically take a lot of strength from knowing just how long this journey has already been going on long before I was born and how long it'll go on after I'm gone. And, you know, there's so many role models out there. But, you know, one person who um, I really look up to, um, I did my graduate school in North Carolina, where I learned about Reverend William Barber, who's who's nationally famous now, but um, who's done a lot of really great talks about anti-racism. And something he always talks about is the need for what he calls a third reconstruction, 
And what he means by that is that there were these broad, like multiracial, multireligion, multi-class coalitions that have come together in the past in American history to like rebuild society under this anti-racist paradigm. And he describes the first coming right after the Civil War, the second one coming right after Brown v. the Board of Ed, and that, you know, now we need a third one. And the point, though, is that we don't need a third one because the past reconstructions were inadequate or somehow flawed, but it's actually because they were successful. And that's why we need another one. Um, so at the end of his sermon, he often shouts, it's, it's movement time again. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it is. And I get to be a part of this one. So I think that's what I find so motivating is that this path has been walked before. There are many who've been doing it for a long time. And if they can tell you that they can do it, I, I can't see any reason why I can't either. You know, as I listen to you and it just keeps going through my head that, yes, this is a public health issue. We've established that. It's a moral issue. It's a human rights issue. It's an issue of justice. It's so basic. And, but it's also so basic in humans to be tribal. And it's so basic in humans to identify an other. And we've got a long way to go. Do you think we can get there? It's kind of about like, like how long can we really wait? Like how bad does it need to be before we all realize that this is a moral issue and that we, can all, we are all standing categorically on the wrong side of history if we're not doing something? And it's a story that um, Isabel Wilkerson relates in her book, Cast. And it's a description of Nazi Germany and a photograph of a whole row of people piling in unison as uh, Hitler goes by in like a motorcade. And she points out that in the photograph, there's actually one person in the crowd who's standing there stiffly with his arms folded into his chest. And he's refusing to salute. And the thing that she says about this person is that everyone around him is tragically fatefully, categorically wrong. And in that moment, only he could see it. At the time, he could not have known the murderous path to hysteria around him and what it would lead to. And that's because this is before any of the um, concentration camps had started. And But she says that he had already at that point, though, seen enough to reject it. So I think that's a really great um, kind of illustration of what Trisha was saying, which is that just because you can't see exactly how profound and immoral and sinister a lot of what is happening is now doesn't mean it's not happening. And it doesn't mean that where we are now is okay. Hope is just so important to all of us, I think. Without hope, there's really nothing. And if I did not feel a sense of hope in this work, I would not be able to keep going in it. Most importantly, I think about how fun it can be. I mean, and I understand it, right? Because this is heavy stuff. This is painful stuff. And I think we need to bring joy into this work. Um, because I often say I laugh to keep from crying sometimes. And I think that as much as there is to be hopeless about in this work as much as there is to feel down about. There's so much to feel joy and happiness about. Another reason I think it's possible is looking back at all the things that were deemed impossible, right? I'm sure at one point people thought slavery would never end. They thought that it's impossible. I'm sure at one point people thought segregation would never end. Um, although slavery and segregation continue in different ways today, right? Not to discredit that. Um, I will say the fact that I I am on this 
podcast with you all would have never happened a hundred years ago. We would have never even been able to be in the same room. So I think looking back at all of the points of joy that we take for granted because we live in the post of it, right? We are the future generations um, that so many folks in the past talked about and we take that for granted. So thinking about it that way, for me, makes me realize that, yeah, it is possible. It is absolutely possible that we can achieve um, this change in society that is committed to anti-racism, that's committed to human rights. are committed to keeping this conversation going. So if you are a school, nonprofit, or any institution or group committed to confronting racism, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. There you'll find transcripts, sample discussion questions, and helpful resource links for all six episodes. As we wind up this series, we wanted to thank you for your support and feedback and wish you a happy and healthy 2021. We've got lots more we want to dig into in the Health and All Matters podcast, a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. Please leave us a comment if there are stories you want us to cover. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other. Mm-hmm.